Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we're going to talk about social science. So don't tune away yet. Uh, we're talking about social science and how it can be directly applied to government, the running of a government. We're talking with uh, David Yoakum. He's director of the lab at D.C. This is an interesting, I don't know if we could call it an experiment, a, a, a new direction uh, in which the lab conducts applied research projects to generate evidence that informs the district's decisions. And uh, one of the, uh, I guess, the, the mottos, the slogans, translate research into actionable policy. You can find the lab at thelab.dc.gov. Uh, David Yoakum uh, earlier was uh, a founding member of the White House's Social and Behavioral Sciences Team and director of its Scientific Delivery Unit housed at the U.S. General Services Administration. President Obama institutionalized this work in an executive order, using behavioral science insights to better serve the American people. And uh, some of the projects at the lab at uh, D.C. Uh, include uh, a much publicized, we're going to talk about this, uh, study on the use of police body cams. Uh, we'll also talk about uh, things as prosaic as uh, smart trash cans and also uh, getting uh, D.C. employees to uh, better contribute to their retirements and uh, things such as flexible rent programs to uh, prevent homelessness. We're going to talk about all of that uh, today. Uh, David Yoakum is on the USU campus to give a couple of uh, presentations, and these are open to the public. You can uh, come and hear about these. Uh, the first is 1.30 this afternoon on the USU campus, Fine Arts, room 264, and that's titled Tales of Social Science from City Hall to the Oval Office. Then at 4 o'clock this afternoon, uh, the uh, presentation titled The Professor Goes to Washington. That's an education uh, room 130A. So, David Yoakum, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so, you uh, you have background, obviously, in uh, in social science. Uh, what got you into this field in the first place? I'm I'm guessing you didn't start out thinking I'm going to you know to go and, and create a lab at DC. No, I didn't. In fact, this type of job didn't exist whenever I was in college and graduate school. I mean, looking back, there's a story I can tell about how I use cognitive psychology and law. It kind of looks like a natural plan trajectory. The reality is, is I was always kind of interested in science and I was always interested in politics in the broad sense of how we organize our communities, but grew up not really thinking those two were related. So I actually thought I was going to go to medical school and didn't to say the least and went through a not a midlife, but early life crisis of sorts, not knowing what I wanted to do, where I started to study what felt like a mixture of those two. I had been doing biology, and I became interested in bioethics, actually, not in the usual direction of the ethics of biological research, but what could science tell us about how we think about ethics ourselves. And this is what led me into a field known as judgment and decision-making, which is really kind of the science about how we make decisions and how the context around us influences us. And the core insight that stimulated desire to think about government from this is the realization that our context, how information is presented to us, the timing of the presentation of the information, the emotional state we happen to be in, all of these different things can influence the behavior that we actually take. And so it becomes really important to think about how we're setting up the context around us and opens up an opportunity to think about how to govern better in our communities by paying a little bit more attention to those contexts, whether that's tax laws or physical infrastructure, like how we're placing garbage cans and everything in between. Mm. 
Uh, I want to get into uh, police body cams. This is uh, getting a big play. This is a, a, a big study it's being uh, praised very rigorous with a, a somewhat surprising outcome. We'll get into that uh, and how this might play out. Uh, first of all, I want to, in general, I'm sure you've thought about um, how science fits or doesn't fit with a political environment. And you're right in the middle of that intersection here with the lab at D.C., um, Sometimes politicians don't want to look at science. Some, sometimes they do. It, it, it depends. on Politicians, I guess, to, to better put it, have a different set of motivating factors than perhaps scientists do. So talk about evidence-based policymaking has been around for a long time. I do think that as a general statement, it's fair to say that people, including politicians, want to make decisions based on fact and think that they are. I think sometimes if we start our brainstorm here with the presumption that there are some people who just don't care about facts, it really hasn't been my experience. I mean, it might be the case that they don't care about having a discussion about facts related to a particular issue because they care about some other issue more. But that's a slightly different thing than saying just nobody cares about facts. I think what the challenges, though, are related to getting the right facts at the right time in the right format to be actionable at the pace that government decision-making occurs. And so this is where there's kind of a lot of mundane issues around, you know, are we really tailoring the research to provide a solution that would be workable given the budgetary, staffing, legal constraints that a particular agency has? Are we presenting that information at the right time so that it's synced with budget cycle decisions or it's using the language that's needed to tap into kind of existing rhetoric. There's kind of a lot of those nitty-gritty details that have often not been paid attention to that I think explain why sometimes if there's a rigorous study that's done out in the academia, for instance, and a professor you know shoots over their 100-page article to a staffer and says, here, you should do this, and then it doesn't happen, you can throw up your hands and say, well, they don't care about facts. But I think it actually, a lot of the breakdown is how that information was trying to be conveyed and timing and the things I was alluding to a minute ago. Hmm. That's what you're doing at the, the, the lab. We'll get into talking about that. I want to jump into the police body cams. This is a, this is a big study. Um, tell us how you set up the study. Yeah, so with body cameras, I mean, maybe the first thing to say here is just what some of the hopes were for a program like this, not only in the District of Columbia, but nationally, cameras have been spreading uh, pretty pretty rapidly. And I think the hopes have been kind of first that having cameras on officers would change behavior in the streets, both for officers themselves, that if they know there's a lens on them, they might act differently, uh, but importantly, also for citizens, where they might act differently. And, and kind of through this behavior change through both parties, the hope was that there'd be less escalation of, of anger or threat, and in turn, less need to use any sort of violence. A second hope for that's kind of beyond the streets is that the video footage itself might be useful as evidence. It's a new piece of, of fact, the video footage itself, that could be used to try to help resolve complaints, to help prosecutors and defendants trying to adjudicate cases. And then maybe the third one here to say is that if there are benefits on the street and in the courts, a more general hope that the legitimacy, the perceived legitimacy of police departments and courts would improve. So everybody would kind of trust these institutions and trust really matters a lot for how we were policing ourselves. And so these were the hope for benefits, but the cameras as they were rolling out across the country, there really wasn't a lot of evidence about how they would work. 
there was good theory to think that those effects might happen based on social psychology in other types of domains, showing that people tend to behave a little bit differently if they're being watched. But it hadn't been demonstrated in this kind of complex context of policing. And so the police department and uh, Mayor Bowser and others really had a commitment to wanting to make sure that, you know, we think there's a good reason to do this. But not only that, we want to go further and really understand how it is working out in the field. And so what we did is while the cameras were being rolled out for the very first time, while they were being deployed out into the field, is we paid a lot of attention to how we did the rollout. And we rolled them out by way of something that scientists will sometimes refer to as a randomized control trial or a field experiment or A-B test. It kind of goes by different names. But the easiest way to think about this is imagine flipping a coin. And if it's a heads, an officer gets a camera. If it's a tails, the officer won't get the camera. And so you end up with two groups of officers, some who got the heads with the camera and those who got the tails who didn't. And these are the two groups that you then compare to see if they have a difference in things like how often they're using force, how many complaints they're getting. And because of this coin flipping, if you see any differences, you can actually infer or kind of determine as best a scientist can that the difference was caused by the camera. And I think if you're not familiar with this kind of jingo about randomized control trials, it's useful to contrast this design with other methods you might use. So imagine you had just given all of the officers cameras in, say, January, and you tracked them over time. And then you compared how often force was being used in January 2017 and beyond against 2016, or what gets referred to as a pre-post design. So you've got, a, you know, you've got a groups you can compare here, before and after. The challenge, though, is that if you see a difference, you can't know for sure whether it was caused by the cameras or any of the other things that might have also been changing across time. You know, crime patterns change from year to year. There is a new police chief. There could be a new social program that gets rolled out. All of these different things could happen over time that could be responsible for the change that you would see in 2017. And so you can't be sure whether it was caused by the cameras. With that coin flip, though, if there's a big change in the background over time, it happens to both groups simultaneously. And so it washes out. One other scenario would be if you imagine rolling out, say, from east to west or west to east. Here again, you end up with groups of officers with or without cameras at different sort of parts of the city, but you run into a kind of a similar program, a problem, sorry, problem, in that if you see a difference, you couldn't be sure whether it was caused by the cameras or some underlying difference between those geographies. Mm -hmm. And we know that parts of cities and parts of states vary a lot in terms mm -hmm. of crime trends and things like that. And so there again, you run into this problem. And there's some other methods that have similar problems, but the, the coin flipping is kind of the great equalizer that gives you a real apples to apple comparison that lets you know if you see a difference, it's caused by the cameras. Another way you could do it is by shift. And I, I bring that up because there's a previous study I want to talk about. I don't know, you're probably familiar with the Rialto City study in, in California. That, that previous to your study, was the most touted one, and and uh, that study had a different outcome. So uh, before we reveal the outcome, maybe people know, but we you know we'll do the big reveal here. Uh, the, your study was quite large. Uh, each each coin flip had a thousand or so officers, right? So yeah, thousand one about, side, thousand twenty two hundred yeah. officers. So yeah. the I think the largest study in the world in terms of the number of officers involved. Right. So uh, what what was the outcome? Was was there a difference between the two? Body cam or no? So take 
uses of force first. And so this is the kind of technical term for, yes, things like pulling a weapon, but also a, you know, if an officer tackled somebody or used mace, it's kind of a, a broad category for any kind of use of, well, force, as the name suggests. And the way we report this is in terms of kind of imagining a, a thousand officers over the course of the year with cameras compared to a thousand officers over the course of the year without. And if you do this comparison for something like uses of force, you do see a very, very small difference. Namely, the group with cameras had about 74 more uses of force uh, than the group without cameras. But what I kind of hasten to add here is that in this case, the range of difference is so small in this case that it's really not distinguishable from the kind of noise you would expect to see. And I think an intuitive way to think about this is to imagine if you're flipping a coin, say, uh, 10 times. And the question is, is the, is the coin fair? You know, equally likelihood it's going to give you a head as a tails. If you get six heads and four tails, how many people would conclude, oh, the coin's unfair? You know, you really wouldn't. You, you don't expect it to be literally exactly five and five. You, you know there's going to be just a little bit of noise. Well, now imagine you flip the coin a thousand times. Here again, you wouldn't expect there to be literally 500 and 500. It might be 510 against 490 or something like that. On the other hand, if it was 900 heads and 100 tails, that difference is so big, you would think something fishy is going on. And that's probably an unfair coin. Statistics gives you a way to try to kind of quantify the fishiness, if you will, of the difference that you're seeing and think about whether that difference is so small given the data that you have that it would be just noise, kind of the equivalent of six versus five, uh, six versus four heads and tails kind of a thing. Or if it's so big of a difference, it's so fishy you think that there really is a big difference there. And in this case, that difference I was talking about is within the kind of fishiness band or what gets referred to as a, as a confidence interval sometimes. And so here's where you hear scientists start to talk about a, a statistically insignificant result mm-hmm. or a, a null result or in just kind of more plain language, a difference that we don't think is a, a real difference. And so in other words, you wouldn't read this study as supporting the claim that you're going to see uh, big average differences between groups of officers with cameras or not in terms of uses of force. Mm. And that's that sort of belabored explaining that point for this one. I will kind of fast forward and say that when we looked at the effect on complaints, when we looked at effects on how complaints were being resolved, you know, were they sustained or were they rejected or found to have insufficient facts, when we looked at the likelihood that someone who was arrested was prosecuted and so on, similarly in these cases, the results that we got were, were null or statistically insignificant in that way I was describing a minute ago. So um, that's not the result that uh, some people wanted, quote-unquote, right? Uh, it's a surprising in, in some ways, uh, definitely a different result than the Rialto study, which is highly cited before for yours uh, study. What, what reasons um, can you think of that, why this outcome? It's a great question. So I think there are a few different reasons that you might get a null result like this. One, and perhaps the most obvious one, is that you know, there really might not be an effect of body-worn cameras on something like use of force. It's kind of the most straightforward one, the one that probably comes across most people's minds, and rightly so. 
Um, but there's others that need to be kind of thought about. And in the paper, if you go to the website about this, we try to talk about these alternatives in, in some amount of detail. One is that there, there could be very, very kind of small or isolated effects. By what I mean by this is that what we, we measure here are big average differences between the two groups. That doesn't rule out the possibility that there might be a single case, say, where the video footage was extremely important or, or useful. And so, you know, there was an instance, in fact, in the district where the, there was a, a claim that was made that someone was shot without any justification. And the police department was describing how there actually was a knife that was pulled. And the people making the, the claims against the department just continued to insist that there was no knife that was involved. And a decision was ultimately made to release the video footage to the public. And there was clearly a knife that was there. And so you might think that this is an instance where that one case, the video footage was being used for a particular purpose for public discussion that, you know, if that was the one, the one moment, our study wouldn't be able to pick up a, some, a, a change that small. It would kind of look like the six heads versus four tails, for example. A second thing to say here, if you're particularly another jurisdiction or department, for instance, thinking about how to think about this study in the District of Columbia in relation to your study, is to think about how your departments might be similar or not to MPD. So the District of Columbia, it's it's unique. It's a, it's a city, it's a county, it's a state all wrapped up in one. The police department there handles everything from presidential inaugurations to protests and has a unique amount of training associated with that. There is a history of about 20 or so years of reform efforts uh, related to a memorandum of understanding with the Department of Justice. So there's a lot of kind of uh, training and churn that has been underway in the district for quite a while that might have rooted out already some of the problems that cameras might be useful for. And so if you're a department who doesn't have that history or context, you might still have kind of lingering places where cameras might exert effect, whereas in the district we don't. A fourth one has to do with spillover, and this actually gets a little bit into your question about Rialto. What scientists mean by spillover is the fact that if, say, let's say I am assigned to get a camera, and you, Tom, are, you're not, you're wearing uh, no camera at all. Well, you might change your behavior because you see me with a camera. So it's not like we're comparing a world where everyone has cameras against a perfect world where nobody does. You know, officers are out in the streets with cameras or not. And so the spillover, where this word comes from, is that the effect on me as the person assigned to get a camera could kind of spill over to you in the control group. And though even though you were assigned to have no camera, you suddenly start to change your behavior. And this is important because if both of our behaviors are changing at the same time, Let's say that both you and I were slightly less likely to use force. Well, since we're changing at the same time, there is a reduction, but we wouldn't be able to measure it because when we compared you and I, we look like we have the same likelihood of using force. Hmm. This, by the way, is what is one of the biggest limitations of the Rialto study if you're thinking about shift randomization, which just means – you know, in our case, we randomized by officers. So again, those heads, officers got cameras, tails didn't. With a shift level, you and I would wear the cameras on Monday, but not wear them on Tuesday, and then wear them on Wednesday, and then not wear them on Thursday. And so what we would compare is between days. But the spillover in this case is almost guaranteed, because like we know you know about the treatment and control group, because you actually live both of them. Mm -hmm. And you might worry that 
the contrast between Monday and Tuesday is particularly salient for you. And you know those days you have the cameras and you know the days that you don't. And so your behavior is likely to start to kind of wash out and be affected in both of those conditions. I just want to uh, interrupt here, um, uh, put put this on pause to, to state for people who don't know the Rialto study. It, that study showed a pretty significant difference between body cam and not body cam, right? So they showed a reduction. Yeah, they, they did. Showed, showed they a did. reduction in, in violence and uh, um, a, a positive um, effect of, of police wearing the body cams. And uh, so that's been cited. In fact, it's I think it's on the probably on the front page of the body cam manufacturer. You know, so they're going to. They're going to want to yeah, and that probably study. not, probably not mine, <laughs> probably, probably not yours. Yes. Um, so uh, another another theory as to why very little difference in in your study that I've read is that uh, th- these are just stressful situations. If you get into intense situations, use of force, uh, perhaps the officer's thinking about the the body cam up until that point, then the you know, either fear kicks in, adrenaline kicks in, or in the best case scenario, training kicks in, but the body cam isn't in the officer's mind. Yeah, so this gets at those theories of change in the street, where the thoughts is that the camera lens is going to exert an effect on how everybody's acting. And psychologically, this might be asking a lot for exactly the reason you're describing, that once you get into the heat of the moment, the fact that you're wearing a camera, you might kind of forget about it. Temporarily. I mean, I think there's a reason why, for example, you have these YouTube clips of behavior that is kind of outrageous, but you might have a crowd of 10 people all with their phones out right in front of you. So on the one hand, you would say, like, how is this happening? Don't they know they're on camera? Maybe not. Maybe they don't. Maybe they don't notice the cameras or maybe they notice the cameras, but um, aren't able to still modulate or change their behavior as a function of that. These would be possible reasons for if there was no effect um, and that's really what's happening here. Those are kind of um, causal kind of ways of which that might be happening. Now, the the police chief, D.C. police chief, uh, he is quoted as saying that uh, he believes the, the, the cost of the body cams is pretty expensive. Uh, the cost of body cams is uh, worth it, if only to increase trust. And he believes the, the cams do increase trust between police and the public. And they may be. So, I mean, this is a place where thinking about what the study both learned but equally importantly, we, we didn't learn becomes very important. So one thing that we didn't do, is, just because we didn't have the resources or timing to do it, were large-scale surveys over time of public perceptions of trust of the department or the court systems. And so if you go back to those kind of those three things I was mentioning about what the body cams might do, that third one of increased legitimacy might or might not happen here. We, we don't know. There are stories like that one I mentioned a second ago with the knife that are kind of a, you know, a single anecdote that speaks to some of the potential value that's there. The, the other thing I would say is that, you know, the use of the video footage for evidentiary purposes is really still a new frontier where a lot of work is needed. One, one limitation of our study is that the data we had on this frontier was a little less in quality relative to uses of force and complaints. So there was some missing data from the courts that we didn't have access to. This is equally true for uh, officers with cameras or not, so it doesn't bias the estimates we have in the study or anything like that. It just means that our ability to kind of detect signal out of noise 
is a little bit lower in this case. So mm-hmm. there could be effect there that we're just missing because our estimates are less precise. And maybe the last thing to say on that front is that one reason the video footage as a piece of evidence might not be exerting an effect right now could relate to how attorneys and investigators are using the footage. So it's new. So one thing we don't have is, is process measures of are attorneys and investigators accessing this footage? Are they using it? And if so, how? There could be places where if they used it differently or better, it could exert an evidentiary effect. And so that's another space where I, from this study, don't jump to saying, ah, you know, nail in the coffin, it's not useful as evidence. I take this more as a, well, let's slow down a little bit. We need to think more carefully about how it's being used. Do we need to do more? And so this 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 is why I, I you know, I get asked this. Do you think you should shut down body cam programs? Or chiefs elsewhere asked, should we just not do it? And the answer I give them is, if the only reason you're considering this is you think you're going to get large department-wide shifts in uses of force or complaints, this study should give you pause because this is a big signal point from a very well-designed study suggesting that that might be asking too much of the program on a specific thing. Mm. If instead you're interested in use of the footage for evidence purposes, if you're interested in public legitimacy, if you want to think um, more comprehensively about how the cameras might be one part of a suite of other strategies you're using in the department to get your policing right, that's a different conversation. And if we can shift the conversation in that direction, I think that's a a very positive development in a way that this study is influencing the national debate on policing. As I mentioned before, um, pretty big cost. And so that's something to, you know, to consider. That's why I guess it's not an absolute no-brainer that, yeah, we we should get the, 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 the body cam. Um, and I understand that a big part of the cost is the data storage. It is. So, yeah, in fact, the storage more than the physical equipment. There's also the cost of kind of managing the program. So one thing to think about here is the type of things that are getting captured on camera are very sensitive often. And not just don't just think of people who are doing a criminal activity. Think of people who are are victims where an officer might come into – say, the house of someone who's a victim of domestic violence and is caught in some of their most vulnerable moments and maybe they don't have clothes on. Like, I mean, all of these kind of things where you wouldn't want to just turn around and release that video footage to the world because of the invasion of privacy of victims in particular. And so a lot of effort has to be made to redacting videos or sort of blocking out identifiable information if you're going to release video footage publicly. And this is something where human eyeballs come into play where you can't just kind of automate this stuff in a way that's good enough. And so a lot of cost is spent up on police staff time, just parsing through video footage and managing requests for the video footage. And I don't, it's hard to put a dollar amount on that. There's actually some effort trying to kind of quantify it, but I I kind of think that that might be the most expensive part of this program. Hmm. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk a little more generally uh, in this, this area. You're your expertise, David Yoakum, uh, cognitive foundations of judgment and decision making, particularly how that knowledge and associated methodologies can be extended into applied settings. It occurs to me a lot of what government tries to do is behavior modification or you know prevention of bad behavior, encouragement to good behavior. 
um, and I uh, want to talk a little more generally, and some applied uh, projects that you're doing there at the lab at D.C. We're talking with David Yoakum, director of the lab at D.C. The lab conducts applied research projects to generate evidence that informs the district's decisions. And uh, we'll have more, uh, I should say, before we go to break, a couple of events that you can uh, come and hear uh, David Yoakum in, in greater detail on the USU campus. That's why he's uh, here. Um, 1.30 this afternoon, Fine Arts 264, uh, talk titled uh, Tales of uh, Social Science from City Hall to the Oval Office. And then 4 o'clock this afternoon, the professor goes to Washington Education Building, room 130A. More following this break. On May 6, 2010, high-speed trading bots sent the market into freefall. This market is dropping precipitously. We won't even start trading him on this 79-time trading! Several hundred billion dollars vanished. Information has a speed. Like nine, seven, nine seconds. 6,000 miles per second. 50 million. On the next Radio Lab, we ask, is that speed leaving us behind or leading us to glory? Join us this Saturday at noon on Utah Public Radio. Hi, I'm Chloe from Vancouver, B.C. I love Bullseye because Jesse's enthusiasm and excitement is totally catching. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week on Bullseye, Oscar nominees, Kumail Nanjiani and Emily Gordon, the co-writers of The Big Sick, plus acting nominee Allison Janney. That's on the next Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Join us Saturday afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking about how we apply social science to government. David Yoakum is director of the lab at DC. We're talking about District of Columbia. The lab conducts applied research projects to generate evidence that informs the district's decisions. And uh, a recent study, a fairly extensive, uh, rigorous study that's uh, gotten a lot of press, um, has to do with the, one of the big issues of our time uh, police violence, interaction of police with uh, the public. And uh, that study had to do with the use of police body cameras. We've been talking about that. Make a transition to talk about uh, some of the other science that's going on at the lab at D.C. You're welcome uh, to join this conversation, if you'd like, at upraccess at gmail.com. Upraccess at gmail.com. Um, so, David Yoakum, you, uh, you're an expert on... Um, Judgment and decision-making, particularly how knowledge and associated methodologies can be extended into applied settings. I wanted to extend this, uh, kind of make a transition from police body cameras to cameras. Um, You know, we have cameras in parking garages. We have uh, traffic cams. In the case of those two examples, uh, studies have shown that that, those do have an effect, Just, just knowing that the camera's watching what you do. Yeah, well, so this goes back to us saying that the idea behind body cams is one that, you know, it didn't come out of nowhere. There's a reason why at the time it seemed like a pretty good idea. And in fact, it's not just cameras. I mean, there's a, to show how kind of subtle this can be, there's a kind of a toy lab experiment that was done once where people set up one of these places where you can go get coffee and they ask you to like drop a dollar to do it. You've probably seen these in your office or something. And what the researchers varied was whether there was a poster on the wall that just had a face with some eyes kind of looking at you. And people were more likely to put the dollar forward when that poster was there than when it wasn't. And so even just something as subtle as like a fake, a poster face can give a sense that you're being watched and change behavior some. And so it's those kinds of studies that suggested that there would be an effect here. 
There are some studies though that have failed to, to that have tried to do stuff like that that haven't worked, which is why the question about whether it would work in this setting was a bit of a was a bit of an open one. Uh, probably a lot of factors go in, and then there would be. Um, maybe over time the the effectiveness would be reduced. I guess it seems like human nature. Yeah, you might just get yeah you might just get used to it and not yeah. pay attention to it. Right, right. Uh, there's an interesting. Um, uh, I'm reading on the your website, um, which is uh, uh, let's see, pull the website up here again. It's uh, lab. dot dc. dot gov. We're talking about the lab at DC. Um, so this one has to, this one is you know lower stakes. But an interesting application of social science, uh, smart cans and litter reduction, in which uh, you're you're going to be testing the effectiveness of science, essentially, right? Yeah. So I mean, one of the, I think when we're talking about evidence in politics, you know, quite naturally, most of the high level media focuses on things like body cams or some of the more uh, hot topic issues, but a vast majority of government is much more mundane things that we, have, we tend to not even pay attention to if everything's going well. But of course, if things started to go badly, it would you would of course notice it if your trash suddenly isn't being picked up or your house became covered in rats or something like that. These are the sort of functions of government that we take for granted, I think, and is really the bread and butter of particularly sort of local and municipal governments. And so that's a whole other space where these kind of ideas about how we might learn f- how to improve those high-level policies that are getting a lot of attention, they also apply to thinking about how we might be able to use scientific approaches to further pr- improve these everyday government functions that in- impact all of us kind of moment to moment. And so in this instance, the project area you're referring to is kind of in the space of thinking about why people litter, also um, what motivates some people to pick up litter or not, whether they litter it or not. And this is there's a lot of both psychology involved in this, and also a lot of kind of physical infrastructure stuff to think about. So, you know, there've been studies showing that, for example, the placement of a garbage bin can have a really strong effect on the likelihood that somebody throws their, you know, Seven Eleven gulpy cup into it or onto the street. And differences like a placement four feet away versus right next to a door they're walking out of could be the difference between littering or not. And so, getting data on how cans are filling up. And the smart cans, the smart part of them are literally sensors that tell you how full the can is in, allow you to start trying to identify patterns where garbage cans are, you know, doing the work that you hope that they are, or are falling short, that can inform decisions about how to place cans better. Uh, It can inform decisions about where there might be a particular problem space where littering is happening, where you might think about the signage that's there or other features of the environment that might be causing people to not pay attention to littering as much. But you do kind of need that data to know where to begin and where to start to gain traction on where you focus your attention. It occurs to me that uh, we could use you or someone, and maybe the study's already been done, but uh, an application here in Utah would be um, behavior modification with regard to air pollution. Uh, And we've talked on several episodes of this program about that. how do you get people to change their behavior? Some days in the winter, Utah has the worst air in the nation because of weather inversions. Um, and uh, I, I know some days here in Logan, I'm driving, I'm guilty, I'm driving, and there's an electronic sign saying, reduce your driving and don't drive. And, uh, and anecdotally, it seems like 
the, the streets are pretty full. Everybody's thinking, okay, the other guy maybe will do that, but I, I can't be today because I'm yeah. late or whatever. I'm equally guilty. I'm in my car reading the sign and wondering how can we get people to <laughs> reduce driving to reduce the pollution. I guess that's the kind of thing. Yeah, so this is where research from psychology and social science more broadly has a lot of insights that could be useful in thinking about issues like this. I mean, historically, you know, we've tended in government to take a kind of a hard dollars and cents economics approach to things of, you know, if something's happening that we don't want, you know, tax it more. Or if you want it more, provide cash behind it. And that's kind of one of the big levers that we have. The other lever, the especially coercive one of arresting people and things like that. But that's tended to be kind of the the extent of the toolbox. I think when you start to think about the what the social sciences can bring, there's a lo- there's a lot of other kind of frameworks. And so let me give you an example of this. And I'll I'll stick with the littering one, but you could tell it also for something like air pollution. If you're designing a sign, say, to encourage people not to litter, do you think it's better to emphasize the problem of litter and kind of really, hey, people, trash is a big problem, really want your help cleaning it up? Or is it better to have a framing that makes it feel like nobody's littering? And this is a real one because during the 80s or so, there was a very widespread campaign around littering iron iron eye. Iron Eyes Cody, was it? Right. Some of y'all might remember it where I well remember that, you know, yes. an Indian comes off um, a, a boat and it starts off beautiful and serene and the water's crystal clear. And as he gets to the edge, pieces of trash start to appear and he gets off the canoe and is walking up. There's trash everywhere and he comes up to a highway and a car flies by and throws a cup out at his feet. And then, you know, the camera dramatically zooms in and Iron Eyes Cody has a, a tear. He's got a tear. That's the right. tear coming yeah. down. Mm-hmm. Well, Research since then has actually tested signs that emphasize the problem versus one that are different that I'll describe in a second. And what they found is that that type of advertising emphasizing the extent of the problem actually increases littering, actually causes people to litter more. Increases littering. Increases littering. Really? And uh, the psychology here is that if you think about what that message or that commercial is doing, it's kind of subtly whispering, everybody's doing it. Everybody's littering. So why, you know, why, why not me? If everybody's littering, this is the norm. Mm-hmm. This is what people in our community do. The alternative frame actually taps into kind of the reverse side of this, which is that people really care about whether they're deviating from community standards or not. This is actually why community standards are, are really important. And so different types of advertisements that have been effective have tended to do things like a sign that shows one person littering and then a group of people off to the side sort of frustrated and angry at that person, sending a, a different signal of what you are doing is not okay in our neighborhood. Nobody does this. And that type of messaging is much more powerful. And this is, you know, this is the sort of decision that if you're designing an advertising campaign or making signs, you know, you gotta you gotta make decisions. How you wanna frame it? You wanna frame it as a big problem, you wanna frame it as something that's deviant from uh, community standards. And that's a separate decision from ones about, you know, how much of a ticket fine do you wanna give people or do you wanna, you know, the traditional kind of economic levers I was describing. These are really psychological features that we know something about, and so our political decisions on this frontier should pay attention to it. Maybe the one of the messages here is maybe government ought, ought to be using more of the more psychology. Rather than blunt force, fine or I think that's a great idea. Know, yeah. Um, let's see. We uh, 
we have a question that's come in uh, by email, and you can email us as well um, at upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. This is Ron. He says, I have a couple of questions. You were previously a founding member of President Obama's social and behavioral sciences team and director of its scientific delivery unit. What kinds of projects did you work on when you were in President Obama's administration? Uh, so we'll we'll have you respond to that one. Then he has got another couple of questions. So I'll give. We did a lot of different things. I'll give just one quick example related to the industrial funding fee, everybody's favorite fee, I'm sure. This is a example that is interesting in that the way this fee is collected is that uh, private firms who are selling things to the government, they actually log on to a website and report the dollar amount of how much of how many, you know, I sold $100,000 worth of goods. The industrial funding fee is a, a small percentage that gets uh, kind of extracted from that that pays for the office that administers this program. So it's a it's an owed fee to the government. Where alarm bells went off for me as a psychologist is that whenever you're asking people to self-report how much money they owe, it's actually not so much that we have a lot of evidence that most people cheat a lot or are deliberately lying or fraudulent. That, of course, happens. But instead, there is some evidence that most people have a tendency to fudge just a, just a little bit. And so the lab example of this is one where you ask people to take a 10-question questionnaire and then to score them themselves, and then I'll invite you to the front of the room to tell me how many of the 10 you got right, and I'll give you a dollar for every one you did, and you know, don't bother to show me your test. Just crumple it up and throw it in the back. Just tell me, tell me you get it right. You do that, you leave. I go root around in the garbage can, as researchers like to do, pull it out, and then can actually compare what you told me you got right, the number, versus how many you did. And again, you don't actually see lots of people getting two right and saying eight or nine, but you do see a lot of people who get six right and say seven, or seven right, and said eight. Like, just a little bit of fudge. Like, just enough to, where you could almost imagine being plausible deniability to where if I caught you right at the podium and said, wait, wait, you sure it's seven, not eight? Because, oh, it was, I just miscounted. It's actually one. I think of, like, a very mundane example of this is that, you know, most of us probably have taken, like, a, a pencil or a, a pad from work home to use for personal use. You have probably not gone to like the back utility closet and taken the entire box of pens. That feels much more wrong. But both are kind of stealing, right? But there's a little bit of fudge factor. What's interesting, though, is that if you prompt people before that report with something as simple as signing their name or stating their name against a statement, I promise I'm going to be true and accurate, beforehand, that little bit of fudge goes away. If you have them sign afterwards, the fudge stays there. Now, think about almost every government form you've ever signed. Where do you sign your name? At the bottom. It's kind of like the train has left the station. People aren't likely to go back and change it, it seems. And so what we did on this IFF website is actually paid attention to where people were asked to attest that they were going to be true and accurate and moved it to the very top of the process right before they reported them out. And what we found, we actually ran randomized controlled experiment to do this, was that firms who got the signature ahead of time reported not a lot more, a little bit, about 445 bucks on the median. But of course, at scale for tens of the thousands of forms, uh, go- companies working with the federal government, it amounted to almost $2 million per quarter, mm. an effect that persisted. So actually dramatically improving collection from paying attention to something as subtle and simple as 
where and when you're asking people to attest accuracy. Hmm, interesting. Uh, before we go to uh, Ron's next uh, couple of questions, um, I just want to uh, make people aware that uh, you can interact with David Yoakum. He's director of the lab at D.C. We're talking about District of Columbia, and uh, this is applying uh, social sciences uh, directly to government. Uh, so one thirty this afternoon in Fine Arts 264 uh, on the campus of USU, uh, David Yoakum will be giving a talk ta- uh, titled Tales of Social Science from City Hall to the Oval Office. And at 4 o'clock this afternoon in Education 130A, uh, the, talk, the title of the talk is The Professor Goes to Washington. Um, so Ron goes on with a couple of questions, and uh, my mind was going there as well. I'm glad Ron asked these questions. He said, uh, what kind of commitment did President Obama make to evidence-based government, and does President Trump have a social and behavioral sciences team? So there was a lot of activity in the Obama administration. I mean, one you've already mentioned, the executive order actually encouraging agencies to pay more attention to behavioral science, also encouraging them to, to hire more scientists into agency positions directly. There's also a lot of activity around the way funding was being given out and trying to think about ways to have funding decisions be somewhat based on existing evidence bases. And so imagine things like different tiers of funding that are increasing in amount and the expectation of how much evidence you have behind your idea has to go up to get to higher tiers of dollars. And so it's meant to be a way of having funding for new ideas, which as a new idea maybe has never been tried. So you don't want a world where you don't fund something that has uh, you want to be able to fund stuff that doesn't have evidence, yes, because you want to be able to try new ideas. But maybe you don't want to fund it at scale across the whole country before there's been a few randomized control trials or other tests. And so there's there's a lot of activity on those fronts. As we transition into the Trump administration, maybe one thing to point out is that the the Office of Evaluation Sciences that was previously the director of where that work was coming from, it's still there and it's still doing really good work. I think what has happened, and this is going to happen anytime there's an administration change, is that the priorities of what people are focusing on shifts a little bit. So, you know, the excitement around optimizing healthcare.gov, for example, went down a little bit. You probably aren't surprised to hear. Uh, but some of the work that was being done with the Veterans Administration went up. And so you just see sort of a, a reshuffling of priorities that happen. And I, I like to emphasize that just because I think if we look beyond the kind of the top highest political layer of the, 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 the froth of President Trump himself and his administration and the things that are happening there and look down below at the 90 percent of the government at the agency level where a lot of operational decisions are happening, the, the appetite for figuring out how to make your programs work better at that level – my experience has been that people at across the political aisle want to have that conversation and want to figure out how to make their programs work better. Um, but admittedly, things can get a little bit weird when you go to that top froth again mm-hmm. and it gets caught up in you know, the front pages and the tweets, the discussion there sometimes. It's not that it's against evidence. It's almost like it's beyond evidence. Mm-hmm. The people are having a different type of discussion where right. they're on Twitter. Right. A, t- a totally different mindset, a different culture. Um, but you're saying that's just at the top. So uh, Ron's last question, has interest in evidence-based government at the federal level changed with the new administration? I think you're saying at the top, but maybe not lower down. Yeah, I mean, I, or, or not. I, I, mean, I, I think the, the momentum behind – well, let me put it this way. I'm not holding my breath for another executive order coming out tomorrow on this. 
Um, on the other hand, I think a lot of the good work that needs to be done is at sort of lower levels of the agency anyway. And so as long as there continues to be the kind of space and agency level desire to do testing to figure out how to make their programs work better, that's a that's a positive direction. Another interesting thing to keep your eye on here is out of the out of the Hill where there was recently a commission on evidence-based policymaking that put forward a number of recommendations to try to facilitate this work. That legislation is pending through I think it's with the Senate right now. Very eager to see where that lands. I mean, I think a positive signal would be that a lot of the commission's recommendations are taken up and funding goes behind it. I think if you don't see recommendations taken up or they're taken up and not funded, then we would be wise to put a little bit of criticism on the Hill and the administration for not doing more in this space. But that's – you have to watch and see what happens there. Mm-hmm. The overall climate, um, I guess the, you know, the, the mindset, that does matter though, doesn't it? Uh, you know, you, 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 so, for example, um, a lot of people felt the need to have a march for science. Mm-hmm. Um, last year, they perceived an attack on, on, on science. The, you know, the whole, the whole uh, trust in science they they perceived was was uh, being assailed. Um, yeah, and of course, your the whole purpose of the lab at DC is to to get science into into government decisions. Yeah, and I, you know, and I, you know, personally, I am troubled by some of the scale back at, say, the Environmental Protection Agency and other places like that. My point here, though, is that I think we do ourselves a favor while we're having political discussion with our, our friends and family who are on the other side of the aisle, whoever, you know, decide what aisle you're on and then imagine your, your friends and colleagues or even your enemies on the other side. And keeping clear whether we're really having a debate about the underlying evidence or whether we're having a debate about kind of values of what we want to prioritize or even what we think the right role of government is. Now, sometimes people do just get the facts wrong. Like, let's not shy away from that. And they need to pay more attention to uh, to the evidence. But in my experience, another thing that often happens is at that other layer of kind of values where, you know, somebody might want to shrink something like the EPA or administration, not necessarily because they disagree with global warming happening, say, to, which is on my mind from your earlier example about atmospheric things. It might just be that they don't want the government as the tool to intervene on that problem. And that's a difference. Now, I happen to disagree with that difference, but the way we talk about it is then one of who is the right actor to solve this particular problem, not let's go scroll through lots of scientific papers. And I think that sometimes people confuse themselves because they think they're talking about evidence when the opposition is actually at the value level or a difference of what they think the right role of government is. And so if we could gain clarity on that, we might be able to push the conversation further. Just a couple minutes left. Um, So and projects coming up that you're particularly excited about with the the lab at D.C.? A number of ones. So hopefully people do go to, to our website. And one thing to say here is that we try to be very proactive and, and transparent talking about all the things that we are working on, both to get scientific feedback, but also to get community engagement about are we working on the right things. But we have we have more sort of large field experiments coming down the, the works. So for example, um, trying to think about how to get medical care to people more efficiently than 911 ambulance calls. So there's a little bit of instances where people call 911. We send an ambulance. It's very expensive to do this. 
but not only is it very expensive, it might not be the best fit care for what they need. And so we're looking for ways to have a nurse on the line who can actually redirect someone to gain care at a clinic rather than in a hospital, gaining a sort of win-win of both more efficient in terms of cost, but also better uh, quick care. But we're going to run an experiment to see how well this works. Um, There's a number of data analytic type projects we're doing, some very mundane. So one related to your trash cans, we're trying to predict where rats are most likely to be so we can target those more efficiently. Um, And there's a number of just innovations in trying to think about how to get the science weaved into government, where we're looking for ways to make sure that the budget process, for example, has opportunities for evidence and planning to generate evidence to literally get into the paperwork and discussions around when we're making decisions about what to do or trying to innovate around the types of community forums we have to talk about what research should we be doing in the first place. And so I think this is a that's a whole frontier of trying to actually invent and test different ways to make government more competent at doing science that is its own own frontier that I'm very excited about. We've been talking with uh, David Yoakum. He's director of the lab at D.C., and he's on the USU campus to give a couple of talks. The first one is 1.30 this afternoon in Fine Arts 264, and the title of that talk is Tales of Social Science from City Hall to the Oval Office. Then at 4 o'clock this afternoon, also on the USU campus in the Education Building, Room 130A, the title of that talk is The Professor Goes to Washington. David Yoakum, it's been a pleasure. Very interesting. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. It's been great. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and City Weekly, a local independent news source with event listings, entertainment picks, movie, and restaurant reviews, available weekly on newsstands or online at cityweekly.net. This week in This American Life, Dodie Horton's a state legislator in Louisiana. She thinks Confederate monuments should stay exactly where they are, still believes Barack Obama was born in Kenya, she's pro-life, pro-gun, ardently pro-Trump. So what exactly did she do to make Louisiana Republicans think she is not conservative enough? My own party turned on me, and I'd never have experienced that before. That's this week. Join us Saturday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University, This is Utah Public Radio, heard online at upr.org. UPR is KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCU Price, and KUSUFM 91.5 Logan.